from Serbia. We bring you. <laughs> and Vegas. Fanning the globe. Behavioral investors know no boundaries. Behavioral investors without borders is what we're called. Even during coronavirus. <laughs> okay. The first thing that I was going to talk about, which I hope you don't mind if I go first, but it's called the Blue Ocean Strategy. I'm not, not sure if you've heard of Blue Ocean Strategy before or not, but it's an approach for companies to determine what is the best strategy for them in the future. And most organizations think about strategy as a competition with their competitors in that industry, whereas Blue Ocean redefines it saying traditional approaches to strategy is for companies to compete against others. And the reason that that, that is not a blue ocean strategy, it's actually a red ocean strategy because, because of the competition, um, it causes blood in the water. And what companies need to actually do is think about a blue ocean strategy. What a blue ocean strategy is, is essentially looking at the customer's value line and working out what the customer values and trying to innovate into new markets in that area, in that um, custom, depending on what the customer values. So the, the, I'm reading a book at the moment and it's called The Blue Ocean Strategy. It's written by, yeah, aptly named, W. Chan Kim and Renee Malborough, I think that's how you pronounce her name. Um, and they're Harvard professors. Essentially what they say is you, you need to innovate and you need to start making new industries and new uh, markets that your competitors don't actually operate in. And by doing that, then you don't have to worry about competitors, you don't have to worry about regulation, you, you're adding value to customers that hasn't been explored before. Uh, and they give a couple of examples. One of the examples that they give is, have you heard of yellowtail wine? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're pretty famous. Well, they're an Australian company. Basically what they did is they looked at the wine market and saw that there's two broad um, markets in wine. There's the prestige wine, which where they charge a lot of money for a bottle of wine. They... Um, differentiate themselves from other types of wine by saying that winning, winning a lot of awards, um, having certain flavors and certain types of quality in the wine. And the second type of market for wine is the low cost wine segment. Uh, and that's, you know, less expensive, um, lower quality wine. What Yellow Tail ended up doing was they looked at what the customers valued in wine across both of those sections. So one was price, the other was um, quality of the product. So what they differentiate themselves on is price, use of uh, terminology and distinctions in the wine, the way the wine's communicated, you know, some um, pretentious terminology, uh, above the line marketing, so the marketing sales, aging and the quality of the wine, 
the wine complexity and the wine range. <clears throat> so you've got the high end and the low end. And what Yellowtail ended up trying to do was looked across all those different uh, criteria for strategy. And they decided to play in specific areas of it and also to create new areas um, for customers, what, what customers may value. So what they did was they decided to still stay with a low cost price. They got rid of any sort of pretentiousness around wine. They um, didn't have a, a broad range of wines, which a lot of wine um, makers make. But the new things that they added that the current wine industry didn't have was a message, message it as a easy drinking wine. Um, they messaged it to beer and uh, beer and uh, spirit drinkers, and they marketed it as a fun and adventurous type of wine. And that's what the current industry wasn't doing. Anyway, where does this all get back to? It gets back to what companies in the market do you reckon are doing? or using a blue ocean strategy where they're they developing up, um, a, think of an existing industry where they're adding value to the customers that hasn't been catered to by the existing industry. There's another- Yeah, I mean, it, it's a rebel wine. Who's rebel wine? Um, so Jake Taylor on our, our favorite um, investing podcast, he wrote a book called The Rebel Allocator and it was um, good enough for Charlie Munger himself, God, to call him about it. Um, and yeah, basically what Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett and um, not Ray Dalio, um, who's the guy that wrote The Intelligent Investor? Benjamin Graham. Benjamin Graham. So those three are rebels in the financial. Yeah, you've got it right there. I've, I've been writing it on my, my iPhone um, occasionally. <laughs> um, but these, these guys are also rebels. Um, you know, they, to, to be a, a value investor, by definition, you're a rebel. You're not with the glamour stocks. You're not in the, the rat race clamoring uh you know to get shares in csl or arb or whatever you're standing um at, at the boundary um precisely where everyone is running away from well what your, your example about this wine i mean you know i'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a cynic about wine um but it's it's, it's a lot of it is because it, there's so much conformity in wine drinking and I see a lot of wine drinkers as being these awful people who are trying to cultivate an image about themselves that's more sophisticated than they actually are. And, you know, the, the easiest way to see that is to turn the wine bottle around and look at the blurb on the back, which is basically word salad um, and, you know, comes across as this awfully, you know, you sound like a tosser, basically, if you if you talk like that. Um, so yeah, and I think you know the average um, spirit or 
you know, scotch or, or beer drinker who's drinking, you know, West End or, or BB or Forex, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, the people uh, behind Yellowtail, like, just look at the label for, for Yellowtail. It's, it's free, it's just handwritten Yellowtail in very large letters. It's got um, a it's kangaroo the on the front of it, and it's yellow and orange. Yeah. Yeah, it's the opposite of like, because often a, a, a wine label is this, you know, very formal looking. It's got a lot of white on the, on the label. It's probably got like an old colonial building established in 1762. Um, you know, medal or some sort of award. Yeah. On the label. Yeah. So what does Yellowtail do? They basically, they are a, a walking middle finger. That every, every Yellowtail wine bottle is a middle finger to the entire uh, tosser wine industry pardon my my language but really that's the spirit of it um that, that's what i see in yellow tail and even as a as a as a um a total um uh uh neanderthal um to do with wines you know it's always that it even stuck in my mind as someone who doesn't know anything about wines so it worked they give another example in the book. There's three big examples, but another one which is quite um, handy. Is... Oh, sorry, I've got a question. Can, can I ask a question? Yeah. Because uh, you, you you were talking about the red ocean and the blue ocean, and the red ocean is where every every business is a shark, and your primary you're you're engaged in a scorched earth approach to essentially routing every single competitor and monopolizing the entire market whereas the blue ocean approach as i understand it is it's a world of joint ventures not so much joint ventures it's more of a world of there are no competitors so you're not even you're creating a new market essentially. so um yellowtail oh right yellowtail have created a market that they're not they don't actually have any competitors in that sure and another example of it that well, I was just about to touch on is Cirque Soleil. That's how you pronounce it. Um, the, the circus company. So the traditional circuses and forms of entertainment used to be very low price. They used to have some sort of star performer or animals or um, multi-show multi arenas. Um, they had a lot of fun and humor and thrills and dangers, you know, people doing somersaults up in the air and all of those sort of things above a net. Um, and they, Circus Soleil, they reconfigured that. They looked across those things and they said, no, we're not going to use star performers or animals. We're not going to have um, multi-show arenas where you've got all things happening all at once. They only use human performers. Um, and what they also did was they went high end. So they went for more theatre style with a theme. They went high price. Um, but I'm re just reading it at the moment. They use artists and music and dance or a fine watching environment. So they created once again a, a new blue ocean or a new market, um, which redefined the circus industry. Um, so that's another example, but there are, yeah. there are examples of companies that you can invest in. And I don't think you can invest in Circus Soleil, but there's... Well, actually they went bankrupt during uh, COVID-19, but still it's a good example. And I've actually seen them 
Uh, I saw them in London. They were fantastic. Okay. Yeah, but I, I get the point you're making. Yeah, Blue Oceans is a great way to, to start a new business. I think any it's the ultimate. Uh, it's what everyone who starts a new business or, or own, who owns a business they want to operate in a blue ocean for sure. Yeah. But think, there's a real famous company. Like it's probably the most famous company in the world at the moment, or in the top three anyway, that does is doing this. Tesla. Yeah, actually. Hmm. They've looked yeah, at- Yeah, they do have a blue ocean. And they've created a new market. It's that niche of not just electronic vehicles, but electronic vehicles with technology, like software technology. Yeah, no. I totally. Automatic. Yeah, what, what, yeah I, 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 and, and how have they done it? It's incredibly stereotypical. Because what's happening in the world, you know, like uh, Phelps and Maya in their, the, the two icons of the hundred bagger literature, what are their, what's their primary instruction? Human progress. What is the main driver of human progress at the moment? The uh, the microchip or the you know a CPU, you know, transistor-based, uh, uh, an incredible leap in computing power driven by transistors. And what's that done? Every single industry and part of life that the you know this elaborate transistor has touched has been entirely transformed. So what this this is just you know what 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 is it? it it's it's a bored Silicon Valley billionaire, you know, who's already incredibly rich off of PayPal. Um, a couple of the guys who there's this there's this cool little documentary on YouTube called the the PayPal Mafia. A couple of the guys from PayPal they went on and started YouTube, you know. So the guys. That, made, that got together to do PayPal have then gone on to basically transform the world in some ways. Um, but yeah, it's just so, some bored, brilliant geniuses from Silicon Valley have gone, oh, okay, let's, let's look at cars now. Let's just basically have a data-driven car. Yeah. So the, the way, maybe a way to create blue oceans is just to have insert insert database into a legacy industry, blue ocean, bam. Yeah, there's lots of ways. I mean, Circus Soleil is a different example. And sure. Yellow Tail is a different example. You know, there's no necessarily one way. You do need to analyze the industry and analyze what the existing players are doing. So I don't know if Elon Musk and his team would have initially when they were getting into the car market thinking, Okay, what's GM and Ford doing? What's the higher end um, Lamborghinis and Ferrari companies? What are they doing in, along this way? But if you ever get a chance, I mean, have a read of the book anyway. It's it's very, very easy to read. And if you read the first two chapters, you basically got the book. So that's, that's my first topic. <laughs> and it, it, yeah, I love it. The thing I like about it is because what you and I studied at Stanford University was a value investor. Online, <laughs> online. <laughs> <I'm lying. 
Um, no, we're just as valid Stanford students. <laughs> You're trying to dis disassociate yourself with Stanford. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some things I don't like about Stanford, actually. Go, go on Edwin Dorsey's Twitter page, you'll see some things. <laughs> um, but we did a, a framework and we used a, a certain framework, a, a value investing framework, which is good, but this, this also gives you a different framework, this Blue Ocean strategy, a different way of thinking about what is a company doing within, um, within its market, so. Yeah, well, the, the framework we learned at Stanford was um, Porter, it was based on Porter's five forces, but um, actually it's Marshall's four forces because he's re removed one of Porter's five forces. But what, and it's about analyzing whether or not the company has a bright future. So all we need to do is modify the framework by adding to the analysis of the future. So, so we look at breadth, right? Customer breadth, supplier breadth. We look at um, bargaining power of customers, bargaining power of suppliers, uh, threat of new entrants and threat of substitutes. Yeah. And so that, those are the four forces, bargaining power of customers, bargaining power of suppliers, threat of new entrants and threat of substitutes. And then we've got monopolies and market growth assessment plus the breadth. So we can add to that is this uh, blue ocean business. Have a read of the book first if you get some time. Like you'll probably even find a PDF of it somewhere online or they've got a pretty good website as well. Um, just go Blue Ocean Strategy um, and instead of 20 minutes, you'll get the whole thing. It's very simple and some good things to look at. All right, so over to you. What was your um, first topic? So I was going for a walk around Serbia in the past week and i came across if you go to our twitter page the handle is behathen which is a portmanteau of behavior and finance b-e-h-a-f-i-n <laughs> just bad spelling <laughs> or just bad spelling to get um to get the attention of, of all of you uh, obsessive compulsive people um i'll try and get the location of where we were but basically we're out in nature and walking around looking at an incredible stone arch which had been created by a stream so basically the, there were two stone arches so you can imagine like like a lot of uh even like the grand canyon Actually, maybe the Grand Canyon is something that's uh, a better example of compounding in nature that um, more people are going to know about. So it's 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 the effect of water plus time. Um, if you took a, a shovel um, to to the Grand Canyon, you you as one single human being would have a a lot of difficulty um, digging even a small trench in the rock um, around the Grand Canyon. But if you have what looks like a small force, which is, you know, just a, a stream of water um, that's usually, you know, pretty small, but, uh, you know, during certain seasons becomes a lot larger. And you let that effect um, uh, occur 
repeatedly over millions of years, you're going to get something like something unimaginable, really, um, like the Grand Canyon. So I, I thought that was maybe maybe we can learn from nature. Maybe when you're walking around, you can you know just a way maybe um, you can look out in, in nature and see where are these small forces which if you add a significant period of time will have an effect that is basically unimaginably large and is you know, really incredible. Um, maybe that's a way that nature can inspire us to put compounding to work in our own lives. Um, obviously the topic of this podcast is you know, the financial aspect of our lives, but there's other things as well. I've got an example of that as well. Um, it's a bit more terrifying. It's gangrene, the bacteria. I don't know if you're aware of it, but gangrene can reproduce itself in nine minutes at such a rate, and I'm reading this from a website, at such a rate, gangrene can theoretically reproduce more, than, more offspring in two days than there are proteins in the universe. Given an adequate supply of nutrients, a single bacteria cell can generate 280 billion individuals in a single day. Damn. The first cell splits become two, and then two becomes four, and so on. After just 47 doublings, after just 47 doublings, you have 10,000 trillion cells in your body and are ready to spring forth as a spring forth. So the, this has a little, um, so you, when you're thinking of investing money, think gangrene. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and it's just like coronavirus. I mean, you know, basically what we're looking at, if you look at the graphs on worldometers or, or on any TV station, it's about what we're, we're not looking at a linear progression. We're looking at something that grows in a curve and it very quickly gets, it's always exponential. And because it's ex exponential, very quickly it gets incredibly large. Um, so yeah, we can learn from viruses. Let's, let's, let's build a, a financial plan <laughs> um, around, around viruses. <laughs> I found the, so the, the location um, in Serbia is Prerast Velika Kapia. Um, so if you just type in P-R-E-R-A-S-T space V-E-L-I-K-A, that should get you to it in uh, Google Maps. And you'll see these incredible photos of these massive stone arches, which are basically, um, yeah, just uh, ridges, mountain ridges, if you like, which have been bored through underneath by, um, by a river. So, yeah. P-R-E-R-A-S-T-I-V-R-A-T-N-E. Pre-rest, space, velika, kapia. And from, you'll see that. How far was that from where you are? Uh, that is a good question. Four hours by car to the south east 333 kilometers yes yeah, it's, it's an amazing site um we, we went on this really nice tour along the danube basically um there's it's 
there's some great things to see in Serbia. You've got a bunch of forts, you know, from the Austrians and the Hungarians and the Turks and even even one or two from the Serbs, um, just showing, you know, how, how, how much war has occurred in this territory, you know, over the past few thousand years. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's a very interesting place to be. So I, I just was have been thinking about investing and how seriously what I should take it in terms of I do definitely take it seriously but as in terms of what pathway I should take it going forward as you know one option for both of us or either of us I should say would be to eventually become a full-time investor of some sort you know spending all of our time or a reasonable amount of our time investing and, and not necessarily working a job <clears throat> the other way to do it would be just to continue to work a job and take whatever savings you can from your your normal job and, and invest that in a passive index fund uh, and it's a difficult decision to make but i think the first step is you need to analyze and work out which one produces a better outcome for yourself under certain assumptions. Um, so I've done a little model and I sent it to you in uh, email probably three minutes before we started the Zoom session. You don't have to open it up. I might show it on the screen. So basically all I've done, and this is quite simple, but anything here in yellow is, a, is an input that you can change. So as the title, I don't know if you can read that that well, but the scenario is, scenario one would be you're a passive investor, you keep your job, right? And you take whatever savings and invest it in a passive income fund. The other scenario is you don't have a job anymore and you just actively invest. Under both scenarios, let's assume that you've got a certain amount of money to initially contribute to the investment, 300,000, but we can change that if we need to. Um, your living costs, let's say they're $45,000 a year. Let's say if you were to keep the job and be a passive investor, you could contribute $45,000 each year going forward. Under the active investment, you don't have that income coming in. So you're just surviving off the extra that you can generate from over and above the passive rate, which I've assumed would be 10%. Um, so I think you have to make the assumption that if you're going to be an active investor, that you're trying to beat at least the passive rate. And then the number of years is to, depends on how long you think you'll be an investor for, at least an active one. But with the inputs that I've got it at, at the moment, if I start off in my passive, contributing 300,000, percent then in year one I'm at $330,000 and at the end of that year I would have saved $45,000 from my job and contributed it to the $330,000 and then got 10% in the next year which that takes me up to $408,000 right and then at the end of that year I would have saved another $45,000 from my job added it to the 408,000 and then got another 10% on that combined amount 
to get to 493 and so forth. Does that make sense? Yeah. So scenario it's a basic compounding formula. So with the compounding formula, you start with the initial uh, value, then you've got the compounding rate and you've got the regular contribution amount. Yeah. So you've got each of the components working there. Yeah, so at the end of my 20 years, I get to $4.3 million under that methodology. Now, if I go the active approach, I contribute $300,000, but in the first year, I need $45,000 to live. So it's 300,000 less 45,000 times, let's assume I can get 15% from my active portfolio. So I'm at 293. And then in the second year, I'm chewing away at it at 45,000. I actually am not made, I'm not generating enough cover at 45,000. I'm not generating enough for at 15%. So if I'm actually a very good at active investor, let's say I managed to get to 25% in active investing, and I just use that one randomly, then I'm in a positive situation. And the positive situation means that in year one, 300,000 times 25%, increases my portfolio up to, what's that? Um, 375, but I have to living expenses of 45, so that reduces the amount. So I get to 318, but then the second year, I go 318 times 1.25 minus my 45, I've got no regular income coming in on this model in the active approach. But at the end of the day, I get to 6.7 million. So I outperformed the passive approach over 20 years. The trick is, I think I can pretty much estimate my living costs. Most of us can say, you know, it's somewhere between 40 and $50,000. Um, some people less, some people a little bit more. I'll put 45. What's my initial investment contribution? Most people can work out that what that is at a point in time as well. The real unknown is what can I actually generate through an active approach? What, what compounding rate you can achieve through the businesses you choose to buy? Now there's a couple of benchmarks that you could use for this. I know Monash Prabhai, and I'm not assuming that I would be able to achieve what he does, but he, I think he's at around about 20%. I think Kenneth Marshall, and Kenneth isn't doing it full time, but he is a pretty sharp guy who's been doing it for a long time. I think from he's doing around about 15% from from some um, something that I heard that he mentioned is around 15%. So I don't think I could get the 25% at 
but this model does allow you to play with scenarios, right? So I was only to get 15% no goer. I get 18%, still no go. 20%, no. 3%, I think we're still short. There's a couple of things you still have to consider here. Like if you really hate your job, maybe it's okay to leave it and, and go the active approach and have a lower net outcome for your own sanity, your own health, well-being and what you want to do with your life. I, I can't hear you very well. I was just saying that there's a lot of factors to consider here other than the, the pure um, inputs that I've put as in terms of active rate, investment contribution, about life satisfaction essentially. Like if you really don't like your job and you can't face up to spending the next 20 years doing it, then maybe it is worth not pursuing that and, and having something, uh, a, lower, a lower outcome, a lower financial outcome. Um, I just thought there's an opportunity here to illustrate for people the uh, amazing phenomenon of compounding. So uh, can you put it back to 15%? Was an active, yeah. All right, so 293,250. Can you put that value in cell D6? Just type it in. D6 next to the, yeah. Or yeah, paste as values or whatever. Yeah. Can you change it to sixteen percent? Or you know what I'm talking about? Just gradually progress it up in in two 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 percentage increments to twenty five, because it was only the increment from twenty four to twenty five. That's a three million dollar increment, basically. So yeah. You, it's only a five thousand dollar difference between fifteen and seventeen percent, but if yeah, so you're chewing a lot of it up in your um, living expenses, right? It's but I just the three hundred thousand less your forty five times seventeen percent. Okay, so the loss from living expenses amplifies this effect. But I just thought it was interesting how a one a one or two percentage point increment from fifteen to seventeen percent only translates into two hundred ninety three thousand versus two hundred ninety eight thousand, whereas a two percentage point increment from twenty three percent to twenty five percent, as you go from three million to six million, or basically three point nine million or four million to six million. That that to me is. A nice illustration. It's what people don't understand. Like nobody, nobody really. I don't like. It's not intuitive. It's hard for people to grasp. They need to see it before in, in front of their eyes with a graph to really appreciate what compounding does. Yeah. The other way to do it is at the passive rate. So at ten percent, you get four point three million over twenty years. But if you take that up to twelve percent takes you to 5.7 million. Or if you take it to 15%, then you're suddenly at 8.8 .8 million, more than double at 
more than double and our, the financial outcome than what we could have achieved at 10%, just by giving up the 15%. The mic goes in and out for you at the moment. So I was just saying that if you increase the passive approach from 10%, where you would achieve over 20 years, 4.3 million to 15% per year, increases it from 4.3 million to 8.9 million. Yeah. Yeah, all I can say is this is a great tool. And, you know, I've got my usual, um, usually expletive written responses to this. Why aren't we given these tools in school? Why doesn't every trip to the bank and discussion with the bank manager involve discussion to do with a tool like this? Why doesn't everybody have this basic approach to their financial lives? Why instead does com the way compounding usually features in people's lives, uh, why is it usually via credit card debt and mortgage debt? It's, it's a sad life that we live. We live a life dominated by compounding, but in the wrong way. Um, and that's, that's the point of this podcast really is to maybe help to change people's behavior so they can get compounding working in a positive way in their lives through you know uh, a prompt from a tool like this. The interesting thing about this tool is that if you are gonna go down the active approach, you've gotta make sure that you've got initial investment contribution, which is su substantial enough to cover your living costs um, over and above what you're going to achieve um, from your active rate. So for example, I've assumed here 300,000 contribution, but if I change that to 1 million under both scenarios, then you can see the passive approach gets you to $9 million, whereas the active approach gets you to $11 million if you can achieve your 15%. So if you're gonna get into active investing, you do need to have um, a substantial initial capital contribution. To Change it to 200,000. Two hundred thousand. Three point six. Change it to one hundred thousand. Two point nine million versus sixty-three grand. And you, you're quickly in the negative. So, in in year three, you're already negative because the compounding fifteen percent of the principal minus the living expenses does not. Uh, keep up with the subtraction each year of the living expenses. Yeah, actually, so you're insolvent in the third year, basically. Yeah. Back into the workforce. So your active approach is basically a fight between your yearly subtraction of living expenses and the yearly compounding uh, at 15% of the remaining principal. And when that... Uh, when there is no balance between the two, then you become insolvent. Insolvent, And straightforwardly, when you have a huge principle, because you know it, a, a billion dollars compounded at 1% is still a massive amount of money. Um, 
But if you can get to half a million dollars, right, as your initial contribution and live on 45 grand a year, and you can achieve your 15%, then you get to 2.8 million, which compares to the passive approach of 5.6 million. So basically half. Um, and the benefit there is that you don't have to have a day job. So basically you're exchange, you're paying you're paying $2 million to not, to have the pleasure of not working. Yeah. And the thing about it is this is just over a 20 year time frame. If I change this to, um, let's say 40 years, and let's say you can stay sharp enough to, to be able to do it over 40 years and get 15%. Ha, you come out ahead. There you go. Especially when you start thinking about multi-generational investing, this is where it starts to become interesting. Don't send your child to school, just send them to Benjamin Graham's School of Investing. Send them to the Columbia Business School online course for value investors, which is 5,000 bucks Australian. Yeah. When they're pro, like, I reckon once, I reckon when I was 14, maybe 13, somewhere, you know, between 10 and 15, I could have comprehended all of these things. I, I would like to see how, how most, say, you know, year eight or year nine kids, it would be interesting to do an experiment of how many of them would, you know, comprehend these, these concepts and achieve something like 15% compounding rate. Absolutely. A 13, this, these sort of mathematics and concepts are easily comprehensible, comprehensible by a 13 year old, I would have thought, 13, 14. It's, it's a little bit hard to, to know because I'm, it's been so long since I've been 13 or 14, but you know, we were doing this sort of complex mathematics at, that, uh, at about that age in early high school. That's when in year eight, we learned about uh, higher purchase. We learned about compounding. We actually had a bit of a, a personal finance um, uh, course in year eight. Um, and that was, I think, when we were 12 or 13. Yeah, but I didn't get it. And this is the thing, like, sure, I did the mathematics. I, I passed the class. I think I recently, I, I kept that book and I, you know, I had a bit of a look at it. Um, but I also remember struggling really to understand it. Um, and I don't know, I, that's why I think, you know, in our, in our next interview with a mathematician, I, I want to, you know, one of the agenda items is to, um, have him share some ideas about how to make this more easy to understand for school kids so that we can have an effective uh, personal finance curriculum. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Maybe we should talk to a um, high school teacher as well. A high Great school mathematics teacher. Great idea. Either mathematics or... Um, yeah, I think mathematics or, yeah, it's got to be mathematics or maybe social yeah. science. Anyway, I have a little bit of play with that. I've sent it to you in an Excel file. I thought it might be interesting for you. We will, of course, put this in the show notes. Yeah. Did you have your last topic? 
Um, yes, I've well, there's a few things I, I wanted to talk about, but I think carrying on uh, from school and what we're taught as kids and what, what we're exposed to as kids and, you know, to the extent that all of that produces or defines the dimensions of the adult um, you know, that emerges uh, from a child's education and upbringing. I, I was thinking about how the stock market is a, is a total destruction. The stock market is, we need, if we're gonna be successful investors, we need to stop using the term stock market. We need to stop thinking about the stock market. It, because it's the kind of um, concept and language which distracts us from what we're actually supposed to look at and what we're supposed to do. I, I, I prefer not to use or talk about the guy that everyone talks about, but because I've already mentioned him, I will. Um, you know, what does Warren Buffett say basically every time he comes on CNBC and, and talks to Becky Quick? He tells us to value the entire company, to ask yourself if you would buy, you know, WD40 company, which is my, my latest favorite stock because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a company that is a single product company. It's hilarious and they've been doing very well. Um, would you buy, the question you need to ask, sorry? Have they been doing well because of the coronavirus and people have decided to do more home handy start home, renovations and things and I heard that's the theme that's the theme that's driving a lot of returns at the moment probably they had a, a massive um increase in in the share price I didn't it, it basically bubbled up on Twitter and that's how I came across it um but what what you're supposed to ask yourself according to you know um to this guy who everybody talks about and it's you know Basically, Warren Buffett's a great guy, but I think there's a cult around him. That's why I don't uh, don't really like talking about him or mentioning him. Um, not that, I, of course, you know, he deserves respect. I don't mean anything bad um, about him, but I just I dislike the cult that's around the guy. But for what it's worth, he does give the right instruction when he goes on CNBC. You're supposed to look at the entire business. You're supposed to have in your head. Would I purchase W? Would I walk up to the walk in the front door of WD40 headquarters, ask for the CEO, and give him a pallet of cash uh, for the entire business? This is how you're you're not supposed to look at the share price. And the the easiest way to understand why why you're not supposed to is say WD40 has a trillion shares on offer. And therefore the share price is only, you know, half a cent per share. Does, does that half a cent doesn't look like very much. So it might, might make the company look pretty cheap, but what you need to do or, or what the, the, the stock market sort of makes it hard to do immediately is to see how much actually uh, the business costs. Another thing um, that the stock market uh, another way the stock market distracts us is that it allows you to see second by second, uh, you know, changes in the price 
uh, of, of a business. And unfortunately, a lot of people think that the price is the value. And then because things might be changing a lot, that can activate their emotions. And before you know it, uh, your emotions uh, uh, guiding your decisions. So I guess what I'm like, basically, all, there are businesses in the world. Some of those businesses can be bought on the stock market. You as an investor are confronted with the world. You can literally get on a bike like I did and ride your bike across the face of this planet. You can ride all the way around it actually. A lot of people are, thousands of people right now. Uh, it's a fairly popular thing to do, are riding around the earth. Every, all of those countries you go to, there, there's businesses in all of them. You can go up, you could actually, it would be an interesting experiment to do. Um, you might not wanna carry that amount of cash on, on a bicycle, but you could literally go into a lot of those businesses and offer them cash to buy them. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, the stock, it, it'd be interesting to know what proportion of businesses operating you can actually buy on the stock market. But my point is that the ones that you can't buy on the stock market, you have to think of in terms of their entire value. They don't have a share price to check. You, you straightforwardly would have to go, okay, how much is that pizza shop gonna cost? And to the, the next thing you're gonna have to ask yourself is how many pizzas that shop is selling per year so that you can get an idea of the income and whether the $500,000 that they want for it is really worth it. If they're only selling five pizzas per year, that's a piddling income you know, to receive. So I, I guess this thought I had is that you know, the stock market in a way prompts bad habits about uh, bad, you know, uh, yeah, bad, bad habits in, in thinking about businesses. It introduces a new variable, the stock price, which is totally irrelevant from understanding, you know, whether or not you should buy a business. Mm. Uh, and I, I feel like there's a something about my, my character and my, my upbringing and, um, and my childhood, which has defined one of the dimensions of me, this adult, is a bit of an activist and, and a rebel uh, attitude. And yeah, I, I think some, something needs to be said about, you know, if only we could, and, and actually Peter Thornhill, um, a, a somewhat, <coughs> somewhat famous, at least in, in, in investing circles, Australian investor who makes $400,000 a year from his, uh, his uh, dividend uh, earning uh, portfolio. He says the same. You know that there's essentially the uh, the population's thinking about investing is polluted by the stock market, and if the uh, property market was put on the stock market, and you could see the changes in property second by second, it would also suddenly you would see the same speculative behaviour and gambling behaviour in the property market. So I guess I, I feel that 
you know, the, the average person, and I, I speak for myself here, like I've, I'm 37 years old, I've come to this investing game very late. I wish I'd been introduced to it when I was 10 or 12 years old and I, you know, um, hindsight bias and all of that. Um, but I, I feel like the average person, when they are introduced to the concept of investing or that just when they, when they list, when they watch the news, they're, they get the stock prices of, of, of things. They don't get the business prices. They don't get, you know, so if, it's, it's kind of sad because in, the, in, the, in a way, the stock market is a wonderful thing because it, it, it provides the, the opportunity. It's a democratizing effect of, on wealth. You know, it does provide the possibility for the average person to climb up out of poverty, you know. But it's almost like at every turn, what people are, what the average amateur is exposed to is not the reality. There's a lot um, of addictive, addictiveness about the stock market as well in terms of just wanting to always check what the price is and always wanting just to have a look. Oh, even if you, there's a lot of addictiveness to it. You know, always wanting, if you ever buy a, a company, some shares in a company, very quickly, um, the next day and the next week, you're always wanting to check the price to see whether you made the right decision and whether it's the price of it is moved even incrementally up. So there's a lot of attraction and um, trouble with um, the prices always being available. Yeah. Well, it's not so. You know, it's not only the what people are presented with, what the average clueless emotional amateur is presented with, which is the lie, not necessarily the lie, but it's a, it's a distraction. Um, let's, 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 let's talk about the technicalities here. Say the world is filled with 10,000 businesses. 2,000 of them maybe are traded on the stock market. But the stock market is merely a way to buy a business. The other businesses that are not on the stock market, the way you buy those in very simplistic terms is to drive your forklift with the pallet of cash to the front door, ask the CEO, give him the pallet of cash, and he gives you a certificate saying that you own the business or whatever. I've never bought a business. Um, why would a particular method of purchasing a business come to dominate and turn into its own entity? What? Because in the end, all, all you, what, what you should do is you spend a little bit of, bit of time thinking and reading about a business. If it's, if, if it's the easiest way to think about it is if it's a private business, so it's not traded on the stock market. So there's not this new source of information that is entirely irrelevant, which is the, the share price, the number of shares, the, the shareholder register and all, all these things. Maybe it's um, incorrect to say they're irrelevant, but from they are irrelevant when it comes to understanding the dynamics of the business, the economics of the business. You know, how, if it's Amazon, how many subscribers they have, 
what is the average spend that each subscriber makes per week or per month on the Amazon website? How many minutes are they spending on Amazon? What are the websites that uh, refer them to the Amazon website? Blah, 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 blah. These are the things when you are thinking about buying Amazon, if it was a private business um, that you would focus your time on. And then you would look at how much uh, Jeff Bezos uh, wanted to, to sell Amazon for if he was the sole owner of that private business. Uh, you know, and maybe you'd, you'd call him and ask uh, to look at the books um, and he, you might get some more details in there um, about, you know, how much income uh, Amazon as a private business was generating. And, and then if you liked it, you would get your, you know, your uh, multiple uh, super tanker loads of cash in the case of Amazon um, and turn up to Jeff Bezos's private port and offload the cash onto the wharf and off you go with your, your purchase of Amazon. But if it's private, if it's publicly, if, if, if it's not in the private market, but in the public market, so you use a stock market to execute the purchase of the business. Then all you do is go to your broker and tell him to, to give the cash to, to Amazon in exchange for, for the purchase of the business. So this in, in, a, in a sort of a, a technical sense is all the stock market is for. It's just another means to transfer ownership of the entire business. But because of shares, because of share prices, and because of um, the, the volatility in those prices and, and the excitement that all of this generates, suddenly we have a new entity separated from the business itself, uh, which unfortunately, a lot of the population believes is a valid entity that should, requires attention when it's, it's not. The stock market is just a mechanism to transfer ownership. That's it. Yeah, and you think about reading Benjamin Graham's Intelligent Investor, he actually refers to the market, and he does it for a certain reason, but he refers to it as Mr. Market. It's a reflect. It's not. It's it's not an entity in itself. It's a reflection of what a whole bunch of different people are thinking about a stock. And just but you used the language there yourself, Ben. You said a stock. It's not a stock. It's a business. Well, it's part of a of a business. Yeah. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. See, so and people talk about stocks. You know that. That's what I'm talking about. The share market, this simply this one amongst many means of transferring ownership of a business, this one particular one becomes like for private businesses, do I go around talking, talking about them and the volatility of those and you know, the, the business prices, what's the latest business price of this private business? You don't. Does anyone go around doing that? I don't think they do. No. Yeah. So it's just it's a it's a cognitive emission that is, you know, it's 
that's all it is. We're looking at a byproduct, a cognitive byproduct, which is produced by the, the human mind's uh, you know, automatic responses to, I guess, the opportunity of becoming rich. Yeah. Um, I was watching a podcast or actually a YouTube video I wish I could remember it a little bit better, but it talks about how our society is moving more and more away from the practical and positive aspects of things and more towards a society that deals just with signs and uh, symbols. Um, and they gave examples of that in terms of Brands, for example, people buy things that are not necessarily higher quality or um, better products, but they buy them because they've got a brand and they that by having that brand, it symbolizes something else to individuals. And it's similar to the stock market. Um, people talk about the stock market and it's a, it's a symbol for something else. Um, and the stock... Well, yeah is a symbol for something else as well. Yeah. Like private businesses, do they have any alter ego, if you like? Because I see Facebook is a business. I don't hear anybody talking about Facebook, the business. I hear people talking about Facebook, the stock a lot and the stock price the share price, you know, of Facebook. But that's not the business. There was one more point I wanted to make, which <laughs> is what the stock, and this is going to sound, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use my license here as someone who has a, an honours degree in psychology, and I'm going to make some straightforward remarks here which are not meant to offend anybody's character or... Uh, you know, um, I, I mean, I'm going to speak straightforwardly, but I'm doing so uh, from a place of empathy. Uh, you know, let's go with, let's, well, think about it this way. If you were okay. going to go to the price, if you had to buy, uh, if you had to buy Coca-Cola, on on the private market if there was no way to purchase coca-cola on the stock market if you had to buy coca-cola on the private market what, what's the what's the market cap of coke i don't know i'll make it up uh, I'll, I'll say 10 billion coke market cap is 217 billion dollars so that is an extremely large sum of cash to have to come up with to go and purchase Coke. Let's think about the kind of person, the kind of background, the kind of education, the kind of family, uh, the kind of multi-generational history, quite frankly, um, that you would have to, to come from in order to be out of front up at the sea at the, the headquarters of Coke um, to purchase it. 
the point I'm making is only certain people, a very few certain people could possibly purchase Coke because of that massively high uh, barrier to entry of, of the purchase price. So only a very few incredibly intelligent, ambitious, well-educated uh, uh, people could possibly even think about buying Coca-Cola. Yet the, the share price of Coke is 50 bucks. So how many people can afford 50 bucks? Pretty much the entire, uh, at least uh, Western world population. So this is, this makes it accessible to everyone. Every undisciplined idiot who hasn't had any education whatsoever could purchase a share of Coke. So what, by, by saying this, I don't, I don't mean to say that, you know, all of these people are unworthy, but it's a different kind of person than you would be looking at. I, I, I would like to know, I'd like to know. You could say that about any company, you could say that about any company listed on the stock exchange, whether it's the Australian or the US stock exchange, none of them are within the valuation that any normal person, average person could buy. Uh, at a bare minimum, they're probably a couple of million dollars and that's out of the reach of, you know, most Precisely. Of and this is my point. And again, that's why, I get, that's why I, I started this point with a, a bit of a caveat. Um, and and I, I don't mean to say anything bad about people necessarily. And I'll just say it about myself. Look at me. Do I have anywhere near even a million dollars? No. But if I, if I did get to that point, it would be because of a display of incredible merit. You know, I would, to, if I was to be able to buy even a small company for $2 million outright, it would be after a significant time, uh, a significant period of striving. It would you know, involve me getting up at 5 a.m. every morning and working until 10 p.m. every night, probably, you know, I would have, uh, I'd have to do a lot of research, you know, possibly unless I was doing the compounding approach that you mentioned, uh, Ben, but that still involves a lot of discipline because I'd have to wait for 20 years to get that, you know, three to $4 million. A lot of people lack even that discipline um, to engage in this small compounding, uh, uh, to regularly make these small contributions to a compounding plan over a 20 year period, or they lack the imagination um, of the outcome uh, of the eff effect of that multi-million dollar outcome for it to properly modify um, their behavior to actually be able to achieve it. So my point is that what the stock market makes possible is for you and me who don't have the necessary intellect or ambition or education um, or family and other social support to get to the point where they could purchase uh, Coca-Cola outright, it regardless allows us to still own a part of Coca-Cola, but without 
first having earned the right to own it, if you like. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but I, by right to own it, I mean in terms of, uh, you know, the ambition, the talent, the intellect, and the merit overall uh, to be able to purchase it outright. And I, I think that introduces into the market a, a dynamic where there are a lot of people who, and I mean this in a loving way, don't have the merit to purchase the business outright, yet are still able to participate in ownership of that business somehow. And you get, therefore, through those market participants who is maybe in a word lack the discipline, because you are introducing uh, you're polluting in a way, and this is a terrible word to use, but I think I've um, excused myself enough uh, to be able to use it at least. <laughs> um, because you're polluting the, the market with a bunch of ill-disciplined people, there's, this introduces a, a dynamic, uh, you know, which I don't know, at least it could be exploited. And I think that's what... Um, you know, uh, Benjamin Graham's talking about in his Mr. Market character. Mr. Market, he had to come up with this Mr. Market character because there are ill-disciplined participants in the market who are dominated by their emotions. You know, the average person, the reason they don't engage in a 20-year uh, financial accumulation process with driven by compounding is because they lack the discipline. So, yeah... Uh, I think at least the market, therefore, in some way is open to manipulation and, and exploitation because it's filled with people who, who don't have as much discipline as someone who had accumulated $217 billion would have. It would be incredible to meet that kind of a person. I, you know, um, I if we could interview some a multi-billionaire on the podcast and learn from them, you know, that, I think that would be a, a real, a real moment, you know, um, then, then we'd be exposed to real investing, real business buying. Whereas my, I guess my central concern here is that the stock market enables fake business buying in a way. Yeah, I agree. So we'll stop recording. Cool.